long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I cannot believe we're here. Season two. I think we had 13 episodes for season one. So thank you guys for sticking with me and making this possible. If no one was listening, I don't think I would be coming back to do this. So I really, really appreciate it. We have a big doozy of a season two episode for you. And we are, I'm laughing because I have a special guest and she's trying so hard not to laugh right now, but there's going to be some laughter probably, but I'll, t- I'll introduce her in a second. I want to say this is going to be our first two-parter disaster that we've covered. So this is episode one and it's going to be two parts of the same disaster, but I'm going to introduce my guest so she can tell you what we are doing today. My guest today is Becky Dell, who's one of my best, 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 best friends. And Becky, tell the people how we know each other. Hi, thanks for having me. First of all, um, we know each other from probably high school. We met initially, but then we became friends as adults back in the early 2000s. When we in the early aughts. <laughs> ages and ages ago. That's right. Becky has the audacity to be younger than me. So we didn't know each other that well in high school. Um, But I was friends with her sister, who is older than me. Thank you, Jenny, for being older than me. (laughs) And um, yes, Becky and I kind of reconnected when we had little kids and lived near each other and went to the same church. So she's she's um, kind of one of my besties. We talk literally every day, don't we? A few times. We're a little obsessed with each other. Yeah, that's good. And Becky, can you tell the people what terrible, horrible disaster we're covering today and why? Yes. So when you asked me if I had any disasters that I wanted to talk with you about, the first thing that came to mind was Jonestown. And is that right? Did I say that right? You did. Jonestown. The Jonestown Massacre, we can call it. And um, that disaster I've always known about, even when I was really young, um, and then I kind of obsessively watch documentaries and try to gain understanding because it's just so big, but it happened on my birthday, my actual day of birth. So Yeah, not just her birthday, but November 18th, 1978 is the day Becky was born. That's right. So... She came into this world on the same day that 918 people left it in a jungle in Guyana, which we will get into. But isn't that yeah. wild? It's crazy. My parents, you know, the day you have a baby, you maybe save the newspaper or, you know, whatever to signify that day and keep track of things. And my parents did not save it because that was the cover story. Like that whole week, everybody was talking about it. So Good call. Good call, parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it's... It's crazy, and we will obviously get into it. So um, this episode is coming out on November 16th, so that is my daughter's 17th birthday. So happy birthday, Sophie. Happy birthday, Sophie. And happy birthday in two days, Becky. Thank you. 
Becky is not a big fan of her birthday. I am a big fan of her birthday because I'm yeah, really glad that she was born. But um, is that does that have anything to do with Jonestown or is it just like an, a general maybe, thing? Maybe there's an ominous feeling that comes over me that day. I don't think so. I think it's just the day. Well, I am really glad you were born. And um, I'm glad that we're going to talk about this disaster because it is a, definitely a story that needs to be told. And there is so much more to it. So preface before we get into the nitty gritty, the Jonestown massacre, you can call it. That's what I call it. Mm-hmm. Happened on November 18th, 1978 in the jungles of Guyana. Previous before 9-11, it was the largest loss of American civilian life on one day. Isn't that wild? Tragic. It's like mind blowing. It is. 918 people is mind blowing. And even though it happened in the jungles of Guyana, do not cry, Becky. I'm not. This <laughs> okay. is good. <laughs> I thought you were getting teary for a second. Um, oh, it's so sad. It is. It's terrible. Oh, but it's okay. I can handle it. Okay. So it happened to Americans. So there, there's a, a huge group of Americans living in the jungles of Guyana, which we will totally explain. But just so you know, even though it happened in a foreign country, it's very much an American tragedy. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously was huge news in the States. So... What is Jonestown, you may ask? Well, to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the birth of a man with a very ordinary name who did very extraordinary things. His name was Jim Jones, James Warren Jones. He was the eventual leader of this group that all died together in Guyana. So let's just start from the beginning. Jim Jones was born in 1931 in Indiana. His dad's name was also Jim His mom's name was Lynetta. They didn't particularly like each other very much. Uh, Jim was their only child. And his dad was a disabled World War I vet and couldn't really work. Um, His mom then had to go out and support the family. And she was none too pleased about it, apparently, from his biographies. He just didn't have the greatest childhood. And he was left to his own devices. After school, he would just kind of wander the streets of this little town called Lynn, Indiana. And he basically um, got the attention of the housewives and grandmothers of the town. And they kind of all just took care of him after school. He just kind of bounced from place to place. And one of the things that he did when he was left to his own devices was he visited lots of churches and he was very interested in religion at a very early age, even though his parents weren't particularly religious and they didn't raise him in a church. So he was actually preaching in a Methodist church by the time he was a teenager. He was just, I know, right? Who lets a, who lets a 16 year old preach? I don't know, but he was very also charismatic, I guess, from a young age. His parents, who, as I mentioned, weren't too fond of each other, uh, eventually divorced, and he and his mom moved to Richmond, Indiana, which is not far, really, from Dayton, Ohio, where Becky and I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where he went to high school and graduated high school. And after high school, um, he needed to make some money, so he went, got a job as an orderly at Reed Hospital in Richmond. And that is where he met the woman he would eventually marry. She was a nurse in training. Her name was Marceline Baldwin. And um, she was like 20 and he was like 17, but he, he roped her in <laughs> and they yeah. got married when he was only 18 in 1949. And 
Um, then he went to college. They, they moved to Bloomington, Indiana, so he could go to college. And that's where he really got interested in what would be his life's work was basically socialism. He was interested in socialism and communism. And he heard a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt when he was in college um, about the plight of black Americans. And he became really inspired by that. And so Jim Jones actually started out pretty good. Like he had a lot of great goals and ideals. He was very much for racial equality. And then in college is when he first started to really get interested in that. And um, he was in and out of college. He did finally finish uh, college like in 1961, but we're going to backtrack to 1954 when he decided he wanted to start his first church. So all the churches that he was in, he and Marshland were in a Methodist church. He was, um, that wasn't good enough for him. He was upset that they were not racially integrated. He decided to start his own church. So in 1954, he started the Community Unity Church. And he did that while Marshland worked as a nurse and supported them. Um, and his big, his big thing was racial equality, taking care of the poor, like, very much things that are good and are in the Bible for sure. Um, and, but at the time in small town, Indiana, not, not particularly accepted <laughs> at all by his white fellow Christians. So um, in 1956, he renamed his church, the people's temple, and he eventually got them accepted into the disciples of Christ denomination. So they did have an official um, denominational affiliation um, and he began to grow his congregation. It was racially integrated. It was definitely making a big difference in the community. They had a soup kitchen for the disadvantaged. Um, they eventually started um, homes for the elderly. He always had a lot of elderly in his congregations. He just was for anyone who was being disenfranchised. So again, he started out real good. Um, he got attention of the local um I don't know what the local officials, this is, oh, by the way, I should have mentioned this is in Indianapolis when he started his church. We've gone from Richmond to Bloomington to Indianapolis. So we're in Indianapolis with the People's Temple. So he got the, the attention of officials, of um, people in Indianapolis, and they appointed him to the director, as the director of the local Human Rights Commission. So early on, he started, this is still like late 50s, early 60s, he's getting involved in politics, which um, is Pretty interesting for a preacher, wouldn't you say? Very interesting. Yeah, Very and interesting. unusual. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it was more common at the time. I don't think it's particularly common now. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, he was able to really work on integrating uh, the Indianapolis. And he, much to the chagrin of a lot of white people, integrated churches, um, the Indianapolis police, um, the local Methodist hospital, and many restaurants. So, again, Jim is not... He's not doing too bad here at the yeah, same. He's got a good trajectory right yeah, now. He, he does. Stay the course. He's must will be go... like the most charismatic person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I feel like he is somebody who immediately commands the attention of a room and just the power shift that will happen within him during his story is just so tragic because he was on the road to make real changes that were positive for so many people. He was. And his charisma, again, he used for good at the beginning here. And it just, yeah, it totally went off the rails. Um, but 
yeah, before all that, he was doing some really good things. He was growing his church. Like I said, they were supporting the poor in the community. They were racially integrated. They were supporting elderly. Um, and one other thing that he wanted to do was he, he was very always like into showing that he was walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So he and Marceline decided that they were going to have a, this is a, I'm going to put this in quotes, a rainbow family. Mm -hmm. And they had trouble, um, I think, conceiving children of their own. They did eventually have one natural or biological, I should say, child. But um, their first child they adopted in 1954 named Agnes, and she was part Native American. In 1959, they adopted three Korean American children, um, a boy named Lou and two girls named Suzanne and Stephanie. Tragically, Stephanie died in a car accident um, just a few months later. She was only five years old. The The temple did a lot of outings for their members, and they, um, I think it was a zoo outing they were on, and the temple vehicle was hit by a drunk driver on the way home, and she was killed. Isn't that awful? Wow. I know. That's one of the few things you you don't, this is like a deep dive research. I yeah, don't, right. Good job. you wouldn't hear that. Yeah. So at the time, Marceline Jones was pregnant with their only biological child, and they um, he was born soon after Stephanie's death in 1959, and they named him Stephen, but they spelled it S-T-E-P-H-A-N in honor of his sister who had just passed away. Hmm. Then in 1961, they took it another step further, and they became the first couple in Indiana to adopt an African-American child, the first white couple in Indiana to adopt an African-American child, a boy. And to further prove his point, they named the child James Warren Jones Jr. So Jim, Jim Jones did not name his biological son after him. He named his adopted black son after him. So first family in Indiana, white family to adopt a black child. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Becky, you're the mom. You have a transracial family. What I'm watching the wheels turn in your head. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Cause there's so many layers. I was actually wondering if he, if he had adopted um, any black children because it was unheard of for a long time. And I can just imagine like the temperature in the room of that conversation happening and that the judge ruling on that had to be really intense. Yeah, 1961. And I have to say, if he's picking and choosing children based on their race, that's a huge issue. Yeah. Is a bit of a white savior even then? Yeah, I was about to say that. So you took yeah. the words right out of my mouth. So as we move on, we will see that Jim Jones, like I said, makes a big show out of sh demonstrating that he is walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Like, that's very icky in a lot of ways. And it's icky when it comes to choosing children that you're adding to your family. Could you imagine the pressure put on those kids? Yeah. Like, that's un unbearable. Almost. Yeah. And it wasn't the most functional family, as we will see. Um they also later never officially adopted, but took in one of the people's temples members' sons into their family. And uh, his name was Tim. And they never, like, made it legal, which we'll also talk about. <laughs> um, but Jim Jones Jr. and Stephen Jones, who are still alive today, and Tim is alive as well. I don't know his legal last name. They all consider each other still brothers and they are still close. So That's Tim good. was very much a part of their family. Have no idea what his race is, though. But anyway, 
Let's talk about, okay, so now we're in Indiana, Indianapolis. This is where there's one of, there's a lot of lines in the story between life and death. This is one of them. Around 1961, Jim Jones started becoming increasingly paranoid. That's a theme with him. He's very charismatic. He's also very paranoid his whole life. He read, this is crazy. Okay. He read an article in Esquire magazine about the safest places to live in the event of a nuclear bombing. And he decided he needed to get his church out of Indiana and move somewhere safer because this was the Cold War, right? 1961, U.S. and Russia, the big Cold War. Everybody had nukes. But I don't know, like, it's hard for me to be like, I just read an article about the nine safest places to live and I'm going to go explore them. I don't know. I'm I wasn't there in the Cold War. Right. But it speaks to his paranoia and his just fear. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people that did this. So he up and moved his family to Brazil because that was one of the places on the list. And he kind of toured around like South America, Mexico, some different countries for a whole two year period trying to find a place to move his church to. So this story ends in Guyana in 1978. As far back as the early 1960s, he was already planning on cutting off his people from, you know, the United States or wherever they were from or their families or whatever you want to say. He was already planning on separating his flock. Mm. So he travels around there in Brazil for mostly two years. The church really starts suffering in his absence. So his he left somebody in charge and they're, you know, making reports to him. And he's they're like, you know, attendance has really dropped. Um, we, we're not bringing in hardly any money. And he demanded that they send him all the money that the church was bringing in because he needed it to live off of in Brazil. And while he traveled around. And then one of the main complaints was, Jim, they're preaching from the actual Bible. They're not preaching about like only helping the poor and racially integrating. They're like preaching the scripture as well. So he had already started to deviate from any semblance of um, really sticking to the tenets of traditional Christianity. And so that was one of the complaints from his people they had left in charge was like, you know, the people you've got preaching, they're preaching too much Bible and not enough social justice. So I feel like there's got to be a happy harmony there. We need to combine those two things. It's not one or the other. And they were definitely leaning toward away from traditional Christianity. So Jim eventually returned to Indianapolis in December of 1963 to a very divided people's temple. And so to kind of get them all united, um, he started, (laughs) you should have seen Becky's face. Yes, he had. I mean, he had like, it's very diabolical. Like he was like, well, the flock is separated. I better create some sort of like havoc to unite us. Right. So he started really harping and preaching on this nuclear fear that he had. And he absolutely prophesied that a nuclear attack would happen on July 15th, 1967, and said that they had to get out of Indianapolis before then. So here's here he is in 1963 telling the people we've got a few years to move we got to move. So um this is the line between life and death people who moved and people who stayed. People who stayed in Indianapolis had their lives. People who didn't most likely ended up uh dead with Jim Jones. So um 
They began moving in 1965 to a place called Ukiah, California, which was in Northern California. It was another place he had identified as somewhere safe to be in the event of a nuclear attack. And his remaining congregation in Indiana stayed behind with an assistant pastor named Russell Winberg, who was uh breaking away from the church anyways because he was warning them that jones was abandoning christianity which he basically was he would he would um continue to preach some christianity but it's not too long before he starts calling himself god Mm -hmm. which is a big problem for me yeah i think that's not correct (laughs) like how could you ever the audacity like i don't get it i I mean i'm way too flawed but you know jim thought he was awesome so uh, they moved in 1965, and he only had about 140 people follow him to Ukiah, California. So he had some rebuilding to do. And by 1969, he had increased the congregation to about 300 people. And in Ukiah, in California, this is where he really, really started doubling down and preaching communism and socialism in lieu of Christianity. Started to call himself God, and he began to really criticize the traditional God of Christianity and disavow it. He would like be like, what your paper God doesn't do anything. Look at the mess this world is in, you know? Um, and he was like, I'm the one who can change everything. So California is where we really start the church of Jim Jones. It's still called people's temple, but it's, it is, this is where it becomes a cult of personality, uh, people following Jim Jones. He also, I haven't mentioned this yet. If, even in Indiana, but especially in, he did this in Indiana, but especially in California to get new followers, he really started doing faith healings. I'm using that in quotes. So he mm. would have his church services, um, people that would appear to be healed when he touched them or spoke to them. But many times, well, all, I mean, they were all fake. They were all proven to be fake, but you know, a lot of times it was his, his, um, followers. He would just make a plan with them ahead of time to um you know pretend they were sick or whatever and then like one time they even drugged a lady put a cast on her arm when she woke up they told her she had fallen and gotten an accident and broken her arm and then he like purported to heal her arm took the cast off and her arm was fine oh my gosh magic yeah that's that's like that's the extremes that he's going to to manipulate and deceive are just and people went along with it yeah the the videos there's tons of videos out there of jim jones preaching and it's like mania i mean it is it is nuts the way people just go bonkers over him and um i i watched several documentaries for this and i'll put it all in the show notes but there's just the people's temple was uh cray cray about recording everything so Mm -hmm. he's got tons of sermons recorded both video and audio meetings conversations there's so much recorded material of jim jones and his voice his mannerisms he's just whipping everybody into a frenzy 24 7. and the Mm -hmm. adulation that people are pouring out on him is super scary like when you watch it the crowds you're just like it's frightening the energy it's it's like it's disturbing so of course people would get really whipped up by his faith healings and one thing he would do to get more congregants once he was in California, because they really started recruiting people hard in California, is he would accept guest um, appearances at other churches and then, like, 
have one of his followers in the service fake a healing. And like, so he's at like Memorial Baptist Church preaching on a Sunday, does a fake healing. And then, you know, next week, 40 people from Memorial Baptist Church are going to attend people's temple services. So he would do that. Yeah. <laughs> and like this guy. Yeah, he's a real piece of work. A real piece of work. And so in California, he's doing all this. He's he's um, recruiting people like crazy. The church is growing quickly. So there's a few other things that happen in California. One is he really, unfortunately, starts abusing drugs. Ugh. And this fuels his paranoia, which is already, you know, pretty high. So he starts abusing drugs. Another thing is he really starts the coercive control that goes with any cult. So he starts um, controlling his congregation's lives. He starts something called the People's Temple Planning Commission. So the Planning Commission basically planned the lives of all their congregants. He kept his congregants busy constantly. If you worked a full-time job, you still had to work after work for the church because they lived, they started living communally. They had a farm. They had um, several homes for elderly people that they took care of, which again is wonderful. They started running foster homes for children through California foster care system. So there were tons of jobs for people to do. So you had to work. People's Temple members had to work for the church, whether they had another job or not. Also, they had to give all their paychecks to the church in exchange for room and board. So they would do communal living, right? You gave your whole paycheck over. Lots of people signed their properties over their houses. And Jim Jones sold their house for the profit. And they all lived in communal living on church property, church apartment buildings, church nursing homes, church foster care homes. So you're living in church property. You're working for the church. Maybe you're working a full-time job also to support the church. So he was keeping his people very busy and very tired. And you don't have a lot of time to think for yourself and question things when you're exhausted and mm. constantly running. So right. that worked pretty well, as we shall see. Um, he also had, they constantly had church construction projects because they were building more homes, more parts of the farm, etc. And these planning commission meetings would go really, really late at night. And he would like threaten people for falling asleep. Like if you could not fall asleep, you you were in big trouble if you fell asleep at a meeting. And, I would have been kicked out. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Anyone with any uh, chronic fatigue, narcolepsy, anything uh -huh. like that, you're in trouble. Um, he also started acting violent. So he um, would bring guns to these meetings sometimes and threaten people to stay awake at gunpoint. He started punishing people physically for the smallest infractions and humiliating them publicly at planning commission meetings or in front of the whole church. So physical abuse was happening. And he also shocked, I'm sure you're going to be shocked by this, Becky, get ready. Started sleeping with female members of the church. Didn't see that coming. Yeah. Not at all. Right. Wow. And he of course had many ways to justify this. He told members, he literally, okay. Imagine you're in a church. Okay. And your pastor tells you, Sex and family relationships are selfish. You need to use that energy that you would pour into that for the church. I'm the only one who needs sex. And the, and he also at one point told everyone that they were all homosexuals except for him. Like, so confused. The layers. Uh, like, yeah. 
there's many, many layers. I don't know what that particular thing was about, but it's something that's mentioned over and over again. So he began, you know, sleeping. He had steady, steady mistress, many steady mistresses. The main one is a woman named Carolyn Layton, who we'll talk about later too. But Carolyn was married. She and her husband, Larry, came into the People's Temple together. And Jim basically decided he wanted Carolyn. He was like, Larry, sorry, I need your wife. Had them get a quickie divorce, found Larry another wife. I was like, here, why don't you take this woman? She's beautiful. You can have her. I want Carolyn. I know. You should see Becky's face, you guys. I wish. <laughs> it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. Okay. Um. So, yeah, Carolyn Layton was kind of the first of many, um, but she was also a steady that he had. His wife, Marceline Jones, was totally humiliated by this. Um, she did want a divorce, but he said, you will never take my kids away from me. And she just finally resigned herself to the fact that she was going to have to share her husband. Um, so she did. And she shared him with many women. Um, Jones and Carolyn would eventually have a child together. Um, they called him Chemo, which was a nickname. There was, it was some foreign language for Jim. I don't remember. His real name, I think, was Jim. But, um, you know, he sent Carolyn off before, you know, like she was on a church Michigan mission to Mexico or something. And, oh, oh my gosh, she came, comes back with a baby. Shocking. You know, so they did have a child together. And um, we'll talk about him a little bit more in a while as well. But he, so he started sleeping with female members of the church and pretty much anyone he wanted, he would take. So gross. So there's physical yeah, abuse. There's sexual abuse. There's public humiliation. There's financial control. There's mind control. There's um, keeping them busy and tired. So this is all late 60s, early 70s. And at the same time, the church is just increasing, increasing in um, membership. Um, because again, they are doing a lot of good things. And it's really attractive to Northern California. They started moving into San Francisco. They were running out of room in Ukiah. And they decided to move to San Francisco. And they um, really attracted a lot of the the culture there that was progressive. So his radical message was really popular with minorities always and students. And he also opened like satellite locations of people's temple in other big cities in LA uh, as a way of recruiting new members. And they would have like huge bus tours where they would take huge congregations down to LA and have a huge meeting and heal people. And then they would like bring new members of the church back to San Francisco on buses. Can you imagine just attending, attending like a revival service or something and then like getting on a bus afterwards and moving eight hours away? It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. But it totally happened. So, and there's huge growth in San Francisco. And by this time, the church has grown to like a couple thousand members. So they're very influential. And once again, Jones starts getting involved in politics. So again, he's, he's liberal. He's progressive. He's, he's preaching socialism. He's got these retirement homes. He takes care of foster children. So he's obviously more aligned with, at that time, the Democratic um, politicians in San Francisco. And there was a guy running for mayor named George Moscone, and he heavily lobbied the People's Temple uh, and Jim Jones to help him get elected. And it worked. He only won by a couple thousand votes. Oh, Yeah. And there was a runoff and the people's temple was very influential because there was more than a couple of thousand of them and they're going to vote whichever way Jim Jones tells them. Wow. What else they did was they went to other big cities in California, like Los Angeles with their buses, found people who were registered to vote in San Francisco, even though they had moved and bust them up. 
yeah, talk about election fraud. This is like actual election fraud, people. <laughs> he is, right, for real. He is like the the strategies he uses and doing satellite campuses and recording all of his sermons he was like far beyond his years like that's what we do modern mm-hmm. like in, like now with the internet and everything else he was doing all of this like grassroots and the vision that he had was so big and it seems like he has it pretty well laid out he was how to get where he wanted to get for sure for sure way ahead of his time wow. and yeah I know it's wild way ahead of his time, but he attracted the attention. Um, So then the mayor appointed him to the San Francisco housing commission as a reward. So again, he's got political power and he was even met during the presidential campaign for the 76 election, met with vice presidential candidate, Walter Mondale and several times with Rosalind Carter, like Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife even attended like a dinner in his honor. Because, you know, he was doing all these great things and the People's Temple members weren't going to tell anyone about the abuse because, for one thing, they probably thought they deserved it. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. sure he had convinced them that they were terrible and evil and he was doing good things by punishing them. So everybody thought Jim was a super great guy. So, yeah. But that's not going to last. So we will talk about these 70s times. There finally does start to be some defectors. And anytime anyone left the church, Jones was very offended and he harassed them and tried to make their lives very difficult, tried to get them to come back. In the fall of 1973, there was a group of students, college students called the Gang of Eight that left the temple. And their main um, protest was that Jim Jones preached racial equality and had a very, very diverse congregation, but all of his church leadership was white. Mm. I know. Interesting, right? Interesting. So that was the students' actual, that was like their main complaint. So they weren't even like, you know, complaining about the abuse or the control or anything. They were like, hey, you're not, you're not walking the walk on this one. So -hmm. good for them. But he was very offended by their defection. And that was the first big defection. Then a couple years later, a very prominent couple in the church named Elmer and Deanna Myrtle left after their daughter was severely beaten as a punishment. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also I totally forgot to mention this. You know how I said, he said family relationships were selfish. Mm -hmm. At some point, Jones started forcing all the children to be raised communally. After your child was about two years of of age, they went to live in a communal people's temple home. They were assigned a caregiver, not their natural parents. Yeah. I'm watching the wheels turn again. Yeah. He's not the only cult leader who does this. Right. You know, like. True. It's part of the recipe for mind control and just, yeah. Keep them focused on the church. The parents can't leave because their kids are not probably readily accessible to take with them. Right. That's exactly right. It's so hard. Another way of control. So their daughter was severely beaten as a punishment and they were like, that was the last straw for them. And they were able to get her out, get all of themselves out. But they were so scared of Jones that they changed their names legally to Al and Jeannie Mills. (laughs) Wow. And they didn't have any property. They had to start over because they deeded their house to the church. I mean, leaving was not easy. You don't have any money. You don't have any property. You don't have your kids. So they were able to leave and escape. Um, They were a big, big blow to him because they were heavily involved in marketing the temple. And they knew a lot of temple secrets. They knew financial secrets. And they knew his strategy. So he was not happy about that. And he did try real hard to harass them, even though they changed their names. Um, 
Next, there was uh, the defection in the summer of 1976 of a woman named Grace Stone. And she was very important to him for a couple of reasons. One is she was married to Tim Stone, who was Jones's lawyer. And he wasn't just Jones's lawyer. He also worked for the, he was an assistant district attorney for San Francisco. Like, he's in, like, local government. And so the couple times that people had tried to investigate Jones for, like, financial fraud and stuff, Tim Stone got it shut down. Um, yeah, so he really had a man on the inside. And another reason was Grace Stone was another woman that Jones was having a sexual relationship with and had a child with. His name was John Victor Stone. Uh, Grace and Tim raised him as their own. Tim, like all the men in the People's Temple, was just like, it's cool. Like, Jim Jones can have sex with my wife. It's, it's cool, whatever. But Tim really loved the child. And Grace and Tim raised him until he was two years old when he was put, you know, taken from them like Temple children were and put in communal living. But Jones knew this child was his and had a, you know, and loved him and had a, a, a claim to him. And he looks so much like Jim. Um, John Victor Stone does when you see, I mean, when you see the child, it's pretty obvious. Um, but um, Tim Stone really loved the child and Grace, of course, loved her child. But she had to leave the P People's Temple without her child. Um, for one thing, Tim Stone was still in and he was his legal father. He was on the birth certificate. For another thing, though, one thing that Jones did was he made his people sign papers all the time. Sometimes he would sign, have them sign blank papers so then he could write whatever he wanted on it. Like he would threaten them, like, I'm going to, you sign this paper. And if you ever leave me, I'm going to write a confession to a crime on this. And everyone's going to think you did it. Well, what he got, he basically got the stones to sign custody of john victor over to the people's temple so grace you know was feeling powerless but she she needed to get away so she left in summer of 1976. um also soon after that in 1977 um john uh, jim jones's daughter suzanne and her husband left now that's got to be big your own child and son-in-law that did not look good for him but what he would do when anyone would leave would he would be, be like you know they're they're evil, they're doing all these terrible things, and he would just make up lies or read the fake confessions that he'd had them sign. And of course, everyone went along with it. So um, he was irritated by all this, and he he did his best to get Grace uh, to come back. As a matter of fact, he got her to record an audio recording for the People's Temple saying that she wasn't leaving, that she was just gonna be away on church business for a while. He got her to do that. and by saying if you don't do this i will never let you see john victor and so because she did that she was able to have supervised visits with him for a while and then at wow. some point yeah she just had to break free and leave her son behind so i'm also telling you this about grace and tim stone and john victor stone because they're going to become extremely extremely significant very very soon but this is the cliffhanger that i have to leave you with on our two-part episode this is the end of part one we're in 1977 um with some big defections people defecting from the people's temple but jim jones still has a huge con congregation and a lot of power in san francisco and that's where we're going to leave you for now what are you thinking becky that is a very mean place to stop first of all <laughs> sorry people and two weeks <laughs> Yes, just the agony that she must have felt leaving her child and 
it's just heartbreaking. I know. As a mother, I cannot fathom it for one second. No. And just to feel like you have, you know, that there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And anything that you pursue is going to take for freaking ever. Mm-hmm. And your husband is his lead attorney. Right. You can't fight him. He's in too deep with everybody. And the child's legal father. (laughs) Yeah. It is surprising to me that Jim doesn't put his last name on all the birth certificates. Yeah, that is surprising. Yeah. But I guess he's trying to save face in some way. Like everybody knew. Yeah. I guess it was like an open secret that John Victor was his son, but he still had plausible deniability. Right. Ugh, gross. So gross. I hate this guy. Um... (laughs) the worst do you think you have enough heart to come back and hear part two yes i'm dying see how it goes all right well you guys it's it's two weeks i'm sorry that i can't record faster than every two weeks for you guys but you have to wait two weeks to hear what happens we haven't even gotten to joan i've even mentioned jonestown no so yeah we'll be back i'm gonna check my timeline to see yeah, what I missed there. And I'll, I'll throw that in because we haven't even mentioned Jonestown except for at the very beginning. We're not even into Jonestown, but we're going to be real soon. So thank you, Becky, so much thank for joining you. me. Happy birthday. Thank you for being born. Thank you so much. Your birthday was one of the best days of my life and I didn't even know it. How about that? I know. Amazing. Because I love you so much. I love you too. Okay, guys. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Please join us back in two weeks to hear the terrible, horrible conclusion to this story. But again, a story that really needs to be told when we finish up um, the Jonestown Massacre. So until then, try not to do any more, uh, any research to get ahead of me. I'm just kidding. You can if you want. But do stay safe and don't be a disaster. Bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.